Look out the window. Can you believe this weather? Snow in September in Kentucky? Welcome to climate change, unfortunately. What's that noise? Why are all those dogs barking? I don't know, but we can't record with all that racket. I think I'm starting to make out something through the snow. It's a big bearded man on a dog sled? He looks kind of familiar, and he's coming to the door. It's not a fit night out for man or beast. Here's the man, but where's the beast? Excuse me? I've heard tell you two have a big chalk white beastie living around these parts. Uh-oh, he must be talking about Solomon Grundy. What's he done now? I'm not sure who you're talking about. Can you describe him? Why, he's a bubble. He used to terrorize everyone at the North Pole, but me and a dentist tamed him. The big galoot has gone missing. It's getting close to December, and we need our Christmas tree decorated. He's the only one who can do it. Oh, no, we haven't seen any bumbles. We just have an undead swamp monster living around back. Is he good at decorating? Well, his shack out back is surprisingly well kept. I suppose you could ask him. I will. Come on, you mutts. Mush. I said mush. Don't you understand, North Pole? Well, maybe that will get Grundy out of our hair for a few months. Yeah, but how are you going to haul all of your blow mold decorations out of the storage building without him? Oh, crap, you're right. Hey, you, wait up. There's a creepy old house out in the hills, a domicile of weirdness. Episode 106 of Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Chris. And welcome once again to The House of Frankenstein. This is part two of our 10th annual season of Spooky Fun. This time we're trekking to the Himalayas by way of England with another classic film from Hammer Studios. This is one of their early horror films and actually the first collaboration the studio had with one of their biggest stars and one of our favorites here, Peter Cushing. So let's climb this mountain. The Abominable Snowman was released in the UK on August 26, 1957. So, of course, nowhere near, you know, Halloween. No. uh, It was written by Nigel Neal, directed by Val Guest. In the cast, we had Forrest Tucker as Tom Friend, Peter Cushing as Dr. John Rollison, Maureen Connell as Helen Rollison, Richard Wattis as Peter Fox. Or Foxy. Or Foxy, yeah. Robert Brown as Ed Shelley, Michael Brill as McNee, Wolf Morris as Kusang, Arnold Morlay as the Llama, Anthony Chin as the Major Domo, Jack Easton, Fred Johns, and Joe Powell as Yetis, uncredited, and John Ray as the Yeti Eyes, uncredited. A small band of men on a perilous search for the man-beast of Tibet, the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, 
You've heard of him, haven't you? The world's most shocking monster. No one's ever lived who's seen him. Be on your guard. He's coming to this theater. The abominable snowman dares you. We dare you. Dare you to see the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. What did it look like? Tell me, what did you see, Kusang? Tell me. I see, I see what, what men must not see. They know it was me that did it last night. They're after me. They're after all of us. They just killed McNeigh. Why said what? that? It was an accident. It's me next. They know it was me. Stay here. Ed, wait. Ed, I can hear you. Listen, coming. you've got to understand that isn't Shelley. It isn't anybody. I can hear his voice. It's in your own mind. It's just happened to me, too. Warning. Only those with stout nerves and strong hearts should risk seeing the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. Biologist and former mountain climber Dr. John Rollison, his wife Helen, and their assistant Peter Fox are wrapping up a research trip in a Tibetan monastery village. Unbeknownst to Helen and Foxy, Rollison is there for more than just studying the local flora. The welcoming but mysterious llama tells Rollison he knows of his plans and how he awaits the arrival of adventurer Tom Friend and his party, planning to join them on their expedition to find concrete evidence proving the mythical Yeti exists. When Friend arrives, he brings with him an artifact stolen from the village's temple years before, an ornate container that holds what appears to be the large tooth of a yeti. The llama scoffs at this, claiming it is merely a carving. Despite this, Rollison agrees to join Friend, Ed Shelley, photographer Andrew Jacques McNee, and their guide Kusang, much to Helen's protest. During the early stages of their perilous climb into the snowy Himalayas, Rollison is dismayed to learn Shelley is a trapper and Friend is more interested in bringing the Yeti in for exploitive purposes. Both Kusang and McNee claim to have encountered Yetis before, and McNee seems obsessed to find what made the tracks he once saw, despite not being much of a climber. He accidentally trips a steel trap Shelley set for the creature, injuring his leg. Friend is convinced another of Shelley's traps has captured a small yeti, but Rollison recognizes the creature as a common Himalayan monkey. While tending to McNee's injured foot, the group hears strange cries and then the frantic screams of the monkey. They run out to find the monkey gone, the cage smacked, and huge footprints in the snow. McNee witnesses a large clawed hand reaching under the tent. Kusang also sees this and hysterical runs away back toward the village. Shelley follows the footsteps and sounds and fires. He, Friend, and Rollison then come across the dead body of the huge yeti that Shelley has killed, as others of his kind wail in the distance. Rollison is amazed by the sadness and wisdom in his face. The next day, McNee seems better, but asks Rollison about the creature's face. The wailing continues while the others investigate. McNee wanders off. Friend and Rollison find him on a cliff, but he refuses to listen to their pleas to step away from the edge. He falls to his death on the rocks below. Friend is convinced that the Yeti somehow used some control over him, but Rollison believes it to be an accident. Shelley encounters two Yetis, apparently coming for the body of their dead kind, before managing to run them off with his gun. Not satisfied with a dead specimen, Fred 
plans on trapping a live yeti and has Shelly rig up a nearby cave with steel netting. Meanwhile, back at the village, Helen witnesses a frantic Kusang arriving and being taken into the temple. When she confronts the llama about this, he denies that Kusang had returned. Determined to find her husband, Helen sets out with Foxy and Friend's porters to find Rollison's party. Up in the mountains, Friend and Rollison stake out the cave from a nearby tent, arguing about the moral implications of capturing the creatures who may be more civilized than man in their own way. With the blizzard moving in, it becomes increasingly harder for them to keep track of the cave's entrance. They hear Shelley cry for help as two large figures approach him. They easily escape his trap and his gun will not fire properly. When Rollison and Friend arrive, Shelley is dead. Apparently of a heart attack, his face twisted into a visage of absolute fear. Rollison is enraged to find that Friend had loaded Shelley's gun with empty shells, fearing that he'd kill his meal ticket. Rollison hears a radio transmission telling of their expedition being called to return, but there's no working radio since it was smashed earlier during a heated argument between Rollison and Friend. Friend then hears Shelley calling for help and begins to head out into the blizzard. Rollison tries to stop him, but is shoved into the cave walls. Confused and near hysterical, Friend tries to find the source of Shelley's voice. Walking past the grave they dug for him, he begins firing his pistol wildly and repeatedly. The sound echoes through the mountains, which causes an avalanche which kills Friend. Distraught, Rollison finds he is not alone in the cave. Two large figures approach and step from the shadows. Rollison looks into the eyes of the Yeti and everything goes black. Back at the cabin Helen and her crew have camped at, she hears a wailing sound. She wanders out into the snow onto the mountain cliff and finds the frozen body of her husband. She calls for help, not noticing the large footprints nearby. Later at the temple, the llama tells Foxy, Helen, and Rollison he's sorry to hear of all the tragedy that befell the expedition, but he's adamant that Rollison admit that there is no Yeti. With a blank stare, Rollison agrees. Yes. Okay, this was the first of 22 films Peter Cushing made for Hammer, although The Curse of Frankenstein was filmed after but released first. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like the first one out of the gate, but this was the first one he completed. Actually, yeah. And his participation in this film was based on him playing the same role in the original BBC television production called The Creature, which had aired two years prior. Okay. Writer Nigel Neal was inspired by a 1954 Daily Mail-sponsored expedition to the Himalayas that apparently uncovered large, unexplained footprints. He wrote the BBC production, aired as the creature, and rewrote the script for the film here. And Neal had had experience with BBC productions being turned into Hammer films. The Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2 were big ratings hits for the BBC, and their film adaptations were game-changing productions for Hammer, leading them on the path to becoming the masters of British horror. So Nigel Neal was very important in the mm. development of Hammer. Neal was very vocal, however, about not liking Hammer's adaptations of his works, particularly hating the casting of American character actor Brian Dunleavy as Quatermass. Despite his grumblings, he contributed the screenplay to Quatermass 2 in this film and continued to work with Hammer, writing for films The Witches and the third Quatermass film, Quatermass in the Pit. He also contributed the original screenplay for Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, but had his name removed when the film was heavily rewritten by director Tommy Lee Wallace. Still, the basic concept of that movie was his. So, And I know that movie has, you know, when it first came out, everyone hated that movie because Michael Myers wasn't in it. Mm -hmm. But now people appreciate it as its own thing. Plus, there have been so many bad Michael Myers sequels right. that people appreciate it a lot more. Uh, you'll notice Hammer is known by one of its earlier names exclusive films here. It is called a Hammer Scope production in the end credits, though. Yeah. 
So Exclusive was kind of like Hammer's original name, or one of their original names. Uh, the film was originally developed under the title The Snow Creature, but that was changed due to similarities to another Yeti film. It was retitled The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas for U.S. distribution. I don't know why they retitled it. I understand why they retitled Dracula, Horror of Dracula, to differentiate it from the Bela Lugosi movie. Right. But why they add, of the Himalayas at the end, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but anyway. Uh, director Val Guest had helmed several films for exclusive Hammer prior to this, including the first two Quatermass films we talked about. He would continue to work for the studio across several genres, directing The Camp on Blood Island, Up the Creek, Further Up the Creek, Hell is the City, and When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. Surprisingly, he never directed any any of Hammer's gothic horror films. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of weird. He was one of the main one of their main guys, but never directed a Frankenstein or a Dracula or any of the big ones, the monster movies yeah. beyond this. Yeah, he and a crew took the beautiful shots of the French Pyrenees Mountains for the opening credits and to intersperse throughout the film using body doubles to stand in for the actors. The blending with the Bernard Robinson always on point set design is nearly flawless and it really sells the setting of this movie. Mm -hmm. This movie looks like a major Hollywood production despite its low budget, which of course was a hallmark of early Hammer. Yes. Just about every time we talk about how great these movies look and they were really made on a shoestring budget. budget. Yeah. Another of Hammer's strengths was a strong soundtrack and that's provided here by Humphrey Searle under the direction of John Hollingsworth. Searle's music suggests Eastern mysticism with just a tinge of horror and dread but there's also a majesty to it, suggesting the nobility of the creatures that we'll mm-hmm. encounter. Yeah, Searle later composed a soundtrack for the Robert Weiss horror classic *The Haunting*, as well as several episodes of *Doctor Who*. And there's actually quite a few *Doctor Who* connections, you know, as there always is with Hammer movies in this one. One thing to note about this that is quite different from any Hammer films we've covered: it's in black and white. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we don't mind black and white films here, since all the Universal classics were shot that way with the exception of the remake of The Phantom of the Opera with Claude Rains, which I somehow forgot to mention last time. I don't know how I managed to do that, but I did not. Yes, Claude Rains played The Phantom in the 1943 remake of that film. Uh, Color was a huge part of Hammer's early appeal to audiences with Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula, but since much of this movie is set in monochromatic snow, you don't really miss the color much. No, no. You really don't. Plus, it adds to the eerie, claustrophobic atmosphere. There's a horribly horribly colorized version of this movie <laughs> up on archive.org but even though it's free and has no commercials do not watch it that way oh my god it's horrible the only reason i even watched it was it was easy for me to do while i was taking notes but yeah. i'd seen it you know before obviously yeah. but when i was doing beat by beat stuff yeah oh god it's awful uh, bernard robinson's impressive village and temple sets were reused in 1960s fu manchu films starring christopher lee as fu manchu uh, speaking of that, there is a large number of non-Asian actors playing Tibetan people here. It was just par for the course at the time. I'm not of Asian descent, so maybe I wouldn't be offended anyway, but I don't think that any of it is particularly offensive or anything. It isn't Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. That was just... <laughs> there's all. a reason Bruce Lee walked out of the film. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. German actor Arnold Merlet plays a llama, for instance, as he did in the BBC production. He went on to appear in Hammer's The Man Who Could Cheat Death a few years later and an early episode of The Avengers, you know, the the Steed and Peel Avengers. Mm. When we meet the llama, he is sitting on his throne and sharing native plants with Dr. Rollison, played by Cushing, and Foxy. Foxy is played by Richard Wattis. 
who appeared in films ranging from the not-so-prestigious like Vampire Over London with Bela Lugosi to A-list Hollywood productions like Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much. For Hammer, he also was featured in Ten Seconds to Hell and The Ugly Duckling. It seems he was mostly typecast in somewhat stuffy, officious, light comedy roles like Foxy here. Mm-hmm. I don't think we really have to introduce Peter Cushing here, do we? No. <laughs> We've talked about him on every season of House of Frankenstein, and he's one of the cornerstones of hammer horror and the genre in general. Plus, there's that little sci-fi movie he made in 1977. Just a little one. Just a little one. They don't do much with it nowadays. No. <laughs> uh, through his conversations with the llama, we learned that Rollison was once a mountain climber and knows the Himalayas well. But he had an accident, and now he doesn't climb. And the llama cagely suggests that his wife comes with him to keep him from doing anything stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, she doesn't keep him from doing something stupid this time. No. Uh, The llama also knows that Helen isn't aware of the other party coming to help him with his work. Uh, We've got a lot to discuss about the llama, though, don't we? Oh, yes. Yes, we do. The Lama also knows that the party isn't connected to the Botanical Foundation Rollison is working for, and that they are coming tonight. Rollison says he didn't know they'd been seen, and the Lama says they have not been seen, but will be here in a few hours. He's connected to, to the universe. Yeah, he is He is all-seeing, and yeah, yeah, definitely. Foxy goes back to their quarters to get specimen jars and avoid the greasy tea the monastery <laughs> serves, and we meet Rollison's wife, Helen, played by Maureen Connell, Best known for this film's Kill Her Gently, Lucky Jim, and various ITV television productions. She was married to director John Gellerman, who directed The Towering Inferno, the 1976 King Kong, and the 1978 version of Death on the Nile. I believe she's still with us, but hasn't acted since the early 70s, so she'd be like 92. Yeah, early 90s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so maybe after she married him, she, you know, he was successful, and she's like, I don't have to act anymore. I don't know. <laughs> She yeah. just didn't remember. Maybe she went to the stage. I yeah. don't know. Foxy reveals, which is a shame because she's really good in this. Yes, yeah, she yeah, is. She's really good. Fox reveals he doesn't care much for his time there. He doesn't like the cold, the bad smells, the food, the tea, or the superstitions. He and Helen have a nice back and forth. And I don't know about you, but I was kind of thinking things might be going in a romantic direction with them if something happened to John. No. You didn't think that? Not at all. You didn't? Th- that was what I found refreshing about this film. Yeah. These are, this is a man and a woman that are just simply friends. Holy shit, imagine that's possible. Yeah. You can be friends, a woman can be friends with a man, and a man can be friends with a woman without wanting to, you know, do the, do the deed. No. They were simply friends. Mm-hmm. There was, okay. There's nothing romantic there. Yeah. At all. Well, I, did, I didn't see that either, but I just thought because he's there and because it looks like John probably ain't going to survive, that might be where they were going. No, I no, I did not get that okay. at all. Well, I, I found that very refreshing about the film. Okay. That she, you know, it's just like, they're friends. And she's not going to fall in the arms of the first guy that's just hanging no, around. Yeah, like, no. Like these other films where like the Invisible Man and like Frankenstein yeah, exactly. where there's a guy just waiting to Again, pick her, pick her up. it was a very refreshing change. That's one of the reasons I really like this movie. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, yeah, spoiler warning, you really like this movie. Okay. <laughs> I know. We wouldn't be talking about it if you didn't, honestly. I, I like the bit where... A la Dr. Fives. Yeah, anyway. exactly. I like the bit where he asked her to take the jars over to Rollison when she mentions the tea. That makes him think, yeah, I don't want to go back and drink that tea. He helps her with her coat, uh, but he just stops halfway, and she says, Foxy, 
I have another arm. <laughs> See, that, but that's the thing. I mean, you know, he's just like, hey, here's my friend. Here, I'll help you. But, you know, he's not trying to flirt with Oh, her. no, he's not. He's, he's not. not. He's I mean, not at all. Again. No. no. Rollison is wanting to talk about the plants, but the llama wants to know how well Rollison knows the party that's coming to meet them, including Tom Friend. Mm -hmm. Friend had passed through the area a few months prior, but hadn't stopped to get the llama's approval as it's customary. This is our first hint that Friend may be a bit sketchy. And not really a friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the llama wants to know what Friend is searching for and why Rollison wants to join him. Rollison doesn't say what exactly they are searching for, but the pursuit of human knowledge is generally what he's after, and the llama scoffs it's a like, bit. Ha, yeah, that whatever. Idea. Yeah. He also knows Helen is coming back, not Foxy, and when she arrives, he purposefully blurts out that his village will look after her while John is off on his climbing expedition. Mm -hmm. Something he had not, something he had been keeping from his wife. I mean, it is hilarious. I mean, he's just like, ah, da da, here you go. Freak. Yeah, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I gotta go, and and he's like. Peter Cush is like, that was deliberate. You know? Like, <laughs> yep. yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, Llama leaves knowing he's sown seeds of dissent, and Helen begins to grill John. He finally admits he didn't come all the way up to their location just to study rare plants. He's written theories about the Yeti before, but she had hoped that he had forgotten about all that. He hadn't. No. Uh, the scene between them is really well acted by both Cushing and Connell. She has a pretty strong female lead for the time, like we said. Mm -hmm. She knows this is very important to John, but she doesn't like it and doesn't agree with him doing it. Right. Later that night, during a village ceremony, Friend and his party arrive. Friend is played by Forrest Tucker, who gets top billing in the film. Until their mega, mega success with Frankenstein and Dracula, it was customary for Exclusive Slash Hammer to have an American lead actor with some name recognition to anchor their films to help with U.S. distribution, like the Quatermass films. Mm -hmm. After Frankenstein and Dracula, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee were big enough here, they didn't need any American actors yeah. in it. Tucker had quite a film career, appearing in such big hits as The Westerner, The Sands of Iwo Jima, and Auntie Mame. He had long stints on the stage like the national touring production of The Music Man, but he's probably still best known for his two-season starring stint on F Troop. He later rejoined his F Troop co-star Larry Storch for the original Ghostbusters live-action Saturday morning TV series, Produced by Filmation and also starring horror historian, stuntman, and FX artist Bob Burns as Tracy the Gorilla. And, of course, that Filmation series was the basis for the later Filmation cartoon series that was put out at the same time as the real Ghostbusters, which was then, you know, they had to, like, basically get the clearance to use the name Ghostbusters from Filmation for the Ivan Reitman, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd movie. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's all kind of weirdly connected. Legend has it that six foot four Tucker wasn't just big in height, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Christopher. I've heard that rumor many times before. I just thought I'd put it out there. Anyway. There's nothing on IMDb about that, but, you know, there you go. Friends rather boorish companion, speaking of boorish, Ed Shelley is played by Robert Brown, who appeared in Hammer's The Steel Bayonet, 1 Million B.C. and Demons of the Mind, as well as Disney's The Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, which Hammer also did their own version as Captain Clegg, a.k.a. Night Creatures, with Peter Cushing. Mm -hmm. And Roger Corman's Mask of the Red Death with Vincent Price. But he's best known for his role in the James Bond films as Admiral Hargreaves in The Spy Who Loved Me and then taking over as Bond's boss M in Octopussy, A View to a Kill, The Living Daylights, and License to Kill. So the last two Roger Moore and the two Timothy Daltons. Mm -hmm. yeah. Another member of the expedition is Andrew McNee. Friend and especially Shelley call him Jacques for some reason. Is he supposed to be French? I don't know. Because he's got kind of a non-British accent. 
I don't know. I just was kind of confused. He introduces himself as Andrew, but they call him Jacques. And then when they bury... Spoiler warning, we already did the synopsis. But when they bury him, it says Andrew. Andrew. Yeah. He's played by Michael Brill, who also appeared in Val Guest Camp on Blood Island from Hammer. A lot of people were in Camp from Blood Island Mm -hmm. on this. Camp on Blood Island in this movie. Also in that film was Wolf Morris, who plays their guide Kusang, as he did in the BBC TV production. Morris appeared in Hammer's Further Up the Creek, also directed by Guest, Only Arsht, and that's the name of it, Only Arsht, and Yesterday's Enemy. He also appeared in several episodes of Doctor Who and the film Cuba with Sean Connery. Uh, as I said, Ed Shelley isn't a very likable person telling McNee to stick close because these people will eat you. Oh, he's a jerk. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's, he's a racist jerk. A friend is surprised to see Rollison's wife, but he assures her that she'll be staying in the village if he comes. Friend is also surprised that he hasn't decided if he's coming or not. He tells him this expedition will find the Yeti, and when he says that word, Kusang turns around in horror. Mm-hmm. So Kusang doesn't know what they're out there for either. There's some interesting conversation over the beef stew Helen has prepared for the starving guests. Shelley's view on the locals even offends Fox, who shares some of them. When Shelley mentions the abominable snowman, Helen scoffs at the Yeti's existence, but McNee admits that he followed their tracks on a climbing expedition once. He gets a faraway look in his eyes that point to something we'll discuss later. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is when Friend produces the ornate silver object that contains the tooth. He says, it came into my possession some time ago. Now, given what we learn of him later, do you think he stole it from the original thief, or did he steal it from the temple at some point? I don't know. I don't. I, where it says he didn't, he ha- didn't introduce himself to the temple earlier. I think he acquired it from not necessarily on the up and up means somehow. Whether he stole it from the original person or. You know, blackmailed somebody or something. Yeah, he did something dirty to get it, I imagine. Yeah. The writings Rawlson deciphers point to the object being that of a local god worshipped by the village they are in. That connection is going to play into this film, but Neil and Guest never hit you over the head with it. No. I mean, they really don't. Fox says it's three times as big as a gorilla's canine. That gives you an idea of the scale of these yetis. I mean, they've got to be freaking huge. Mm -hmm. And it matches Rawlson's theories on their size and build, but... He'll actually be a little off. They're bigger than what he imagined, actually. Uh, the people of the monastery begin their ceremony, and Friend is concerned it's a war dance. Rawlson assures them that they're Buddhists and they don't believe in war. He stops Shelley and McNeve from taking photographs since it's against their beliefs. So we're seeing the clear divide between Rawlson's ethical scientist yep. and the glory-seeking party Friend has. Mm-hmm. In many ways, it's like an Indiana Jones adventure in that way. Right. Except they're not Nazis. You yeah. know, I mean, they're, they're not good people, but they're not Nazis. You yeah. know, I mean, you know, they're not that bad. <laughs> you know, so, so. Uh, Friend isn't planning on taking his porters with him, instead going with a small group of five, noting that every other Yeti expedition had a throng of people who probably alerted the creatures and scared them off. On his earlier trip, he and his large party planted supplies and huts and caves along the way. So he seems to have all this figured out pretty well. Yeah. He seems to. Seems to. We'll see that things go sideways pretty quickly. I have to say Forrest Tucker is really good in this. Mm-hmm. I really only know him from F Troop, which I loved as a kid, and Ghostbusters, which I have vague memories of when it re-aired in the late 70s, a few years after its original run mid-decade. Both of those are obviously comedy roles, but he's totally believable as a rugged adventurer type. Well, he's a slimy snake oil salesman. Yeah, he is. Yeah, but he's also you can you can you get the adventurer part of it. Too. I know, but you yeah. see what I mean. Yeah, 
he's the guy that Indiana Jones got the hat from in the mm-hmm. in the Last Crusade at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. he's that type of guy. He tells them that Kusang is the chosen porter to go with them because he's seen a Yeti, and will later learn he hasn't seen a real Yeti. Not yet, anyway. Right. <laughs> Not Yeti, anyway. Oh, uh, gosh. Sorry, it, friends. Yeah. Uh, speaking of friends. Friend pours it on, telling Rollison this is their best chance, with the heavy snowfall coming in, to push the creatures down as they go up, and with Rollison's expertise as both a climber and a scientist. Of course, Helen is very upset about all of this, and who can blame her? Right. I mean, right. this is like, this is not what she signed up for. This is not what they come here for. And now he's going on this very dangerous expedition with people she doesn't like and trust. Well, and she, you know, come on. I want you to, t- you know, she's expecting these people to take care of her husband. And that, you know, he's not trustworthy. Yeah. Yeah. None yeah. Of them are. yeah. Rollison wants to take the tooth to the llama first. He thanks Friend for returning it, but says it is only a carved tooth created by a monk long ago to honor one of their gods. He then chastises the men for chasing after this animal. But as he says that word you can hear there's something else going on in his mind. It's almost like he's choking on referring to it that way. Yeah. Despite trying to dissuade them. So, yeah, I, I like that. You know, we're going to get we're going to get more of that later. It's not going to be spelled out for us, but it's there. A uh, friend tells Rollison he's not obligated to join them, but John agrees right then and there and Helen runs off. <laughs> Just like, dude. Yeah. What did you oh, yeah. Uh, the next morning, the party is preparing to leave, and Friend tells Kusang that the other porters will have to wait for their pay until the party gets back. And that's a nice setup here for what will happen later. Mm-hmm. Rawlson tells Foxy to look after Helen, and I really thought we were setting up John's death at the end of this. Did you get that? No. You really didn't think he'd die? No. Hmm. No. I, I, I mean, didn't I... know. I just didn't know. I thought, I mean, this, uh, spoiler warning, I mean, well, not really spoiler warning. Me and Cindy watched this for the first time this summer. It's always yes. been on my list of movies to watch. I just haven't had access to it. And so we watched it with, oh, well, maybe we can do this on House of Frankenstein. Right. And we really liked it, so we ended up doing it. Plus, I knew I had some comics that would connect with this really well. John is almost convinced Helen is going to be okay, but she sees Kusang speaking with the Lama's major domo, and both are gesturing to the mountains. She's convinced John won't return at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Major Domo is played by Anthony Chen, who also appeared in The Camp on Blood Island, again, and A View to a Kill, as well as Dr. No, Goldfinger, The Fifth Element, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's in, like, everything. Yeah. Uh, when they take off, it doesn't take long for some mild arguments to start. They put Rollison in the lead, since he's the expert climber. But Shelley yells at McNee not to crowd the others and nearly causes an avalanche. Rollison warns them not to make loud noises, which, of course, is another setup. But as we pointed out, everybody in this movie makes loud noises. At some point, yes. They're all yelling and yeah, so shooting it, guns. Shooting yeah. guns. Sometimes, sometimes it makes an avalanche, and sometimes it don't. So, but I guess that's just part of it. The shots of them climbing again, filmed in the French Pyrenees, and the music in those sequences reminds me a little bit of the early parts of John Williams' Fortress of Solitude theme, while Clark is trudging through the Arctic in Superman the movie. I can see you know, that. Those yeah. sweeping shots, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of that, and it's got that kind of mysterious, you know, uh, feel to it. We see early on that McNee is the weak link in the chain, not being a good climber at all. Anyone who knows horror films know what this means. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He gonna die. He got a target on him, yeah. Like Danny says, he gonna die today. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) They stop at the first hut, dig up rations that Friend buried, and he tells them of his plan to stop every 2,000 feet up the mountain, Rawlison offers his opinion that the creatures survive on mice and moles, as well as plants buried under the snow. He believes they are adaptable like man. 
And Friend asks if he thinks they are some kind of missing link. And Rollison offers that it may be a third offshoot of the great apes that evolved into man and the modern ape, a parallel development that was nearly driven to extinction by the others and moved to nearly inhospitable climates to survive. Of course, since Peter Cushing is saying this, you totally buy it. Well, yeah, it's science. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, exactly. It's, it's what happened. It's, it's like when he was telling you how to kill vampires. You yeah. Know? It's like, and, then, and then he changes it in the next movie and you still believe it. Yeah. This is when Friend reveals Shelley is actually an expert tracker when he produces a small sample of a tungsten steel net. Rawlson is appalled by what else they may have stored, like guns. Angered about their secrecy, Friend tells him his reaction is why he didn't tell him at first. I, yeah, I'm t- yeah. I really like how their motivations are very slowly explained. We get this, and we think Friend is perhaps a bit shady, but not entirely out to exploit the situation. But we learn more later. Mm -hmm. It adds to the tension of the whole piece, and the filmmakers were smart to not let the audience know before Rollison found out. Yes. I mean, they could have very well have, like, had a scene where. Rollison was talking to friend before they come into the temple, the village. Like, now look, we gotta keep this. You know, we gotta oh, act. The DL, yeah. yeah, we gotta like act like we're you know this is a scientific expedition and blah 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 and all that. So, while they're arguing, McNee thinks he hears something outside. They check but see nothing. But this points to where his character is going. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, friend tries to convince Rollison while his interest is ultimately commercial. It doesn't negate his drive to fuel human curiosity and give the world a new slant on humanity. He's actually pretty convincing here. And I kind of believed him at this point. Uh, what about you? I, I did. I mean, I was like, I didn't realize what a slime ball he was until a little later. Yeah, exactly. I don't think he was entirely pulling his leg, but his base nature will come through as things get more dire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We cut back to the village, and friends' porters are after Helen for their payment. Foxy runs them off, but she's convinced that they know something is wrong. Yeah. Uh, that Ross and the others won't return. She brings up the stories of clairvoyance and mind transference rumored to be used in this culture, and Foxy scoffs as it is sham magic, he calls it. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Not so much. He visits the llama to ask him to keep the porters off of Helen, but he finds him in a meditative trance staring at the window with his eyes rolled up in his head. So do you think he was communicating with the Yetis? I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. That's, you know. I mean, did the llama... Again, I think he's connected to the universe, quote-unquote, and the Yeti might be too, and there might be a convergence there, but I don't know about a direct link. You know what I mean? See, I think that village is like, like very, that monastery is like, the it's like they basically worship the Yeti, mm. and I feel like they are connected to him. That's mm. kind of my theory. Okay. I, I don't know if he was just, you know, like, if he was like colluding with them or you know I don't know I don't know what to think or he's just like getting he's like listening to what they're saying or but he's in some he's communicating with them somehow or with the world and he's aware because we already know he's aware of when people are going to do different Mm -hmm. things so he knows what they're doing basically Uh, we rejoin the expedition and Rollison and McNee are behind the others with Rollison looking for moss under the snow as a possible food supply highly nutritious he says yeah Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did he try it I mean, I don't know. I don't know. We eat salad. Yeah, well, that's true. Rollison points out to McNee that he isn't a great climber. McNee admits he's obsessed with finding the Yeti after his previous encounter. He signed on for many expeditions but was turned down each time. He paid Friend to let him join this uh-huh. one. Another fact hidden from Rollison. Yep. Yeah, so he paid him money to come do bad investment. Yeah. <laughs> Just to... <laughs> yeah. 
They get far behind the others, and McNee gets his foot stuck in a trap. Shelly set. Shelly arrives free at McNee's foot and tells an angry Rollison that the traps have worked since they caught one. I was pretty surprised when he said that. I was like, hey, the movie's only half over. Right. You know, it's like, wow, this is going pretty quick. Of course, it's a pretty short movie, too. Of course, all they've caught is a Himalayan monkey, despite Kusang assuring them it's what he saw before. It's kind of surprising that Friend would believe this was supposedly the seven to eight foot tall creature, even if he did consider Rawlison might be wrong. I guess he wanted to believe it. It's not necessarily that he wanted to believe it. He has something to bring back that he will have others believe. This is where the snake oil part comes in. Yeah. Oh, he says that later. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he instantly, you're right, I think he instantly thought, well, I can sell this. Yeah. Yeah. In the tent, they get the radio working long enough to learn there's a blizzard heading their way. It doesn't last long as it's smashed in the tussle when Friend reveals he plans on selling that monkey as the real Yeti. Shelley stupidly mentions their involvement in what's called the Franzini case, where Indian children were sold as having been raised by wolves, only to later be revealed to be mental defectives, as Rollison puts it. He calls Friend a cheap fairground trickster, and the two wrestle about crushing the radio. So now you know that Friend was actually Franzini. He's changed his name. Yeah. He's, you know, you don't know how many times he's been involved in things like this. Right, right, right. Yeah. He's either, so, he either was Franzini, or he was involved in a case with a guy named Franzini or something, and that's... You know, uh, he didn't use the name Tom Friend. He no. even says uh-uh. that. He said, I got, I've used whatever name I need to. Or what, uh-huh. you know. uh, Indian Kid Raised by Wolves gives me a Rudyard Kipling Jungle Book vibe. Yes. <laughs> so uh, They quickly get over their beef, chalking up to the altitude, but I think Rollison has every right to be pissed. Oh, yeah. They totally took him in. They, you know. Uh-uh. Yeah, they hoodooed him just to get him to come, yeah. McNee gets a blank stare. They then hear the sound of the monkey screaming and the cage being rattled. They find two sets of tracks, the monkeys, and a large pair, 15 to 16 inches long. So I guess the Yeti freed the monkeys. Yeah, see, that's I think that's what happened, because otherwise it wouldn't have been a set of tracks. I think you're like, come on, let's go. Yeah, he, you would have seen blood like he ate yeah. it or something. Yeah. Uh, that's a nice, or dragged, or, you know. Yeah, that's a nice hint to their ultimately peaceful nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kusang runs back to the tent for the rifles, but McNee is watching a large clawed hand reach under the tent and grasp at them and the other gear. And I'm guessing the way they did this is they made scaled down rifles and props and fashioned a glove with longer fingers. Mm-hmm. Phil Leakey provided the makeup and effects as he would on Hammer's earliest horror hits like the prior Quatermass films and The Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula. And I think it's it's convincing. I know, and I think it's, I mean, to me... Where McNee does not raise the alarm. He's just watching the yeah. hand. I mean, that's another step is where we're going to see this head. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't scream. He just like walk, walk like he's just, he's like in a trance then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They get back to the tent and McNee is basically catatonic and Kusang is in shock. And I love his line when they ask him what he saw. He said, I see, I see what a man must not see. I see true Yeti. You make me see. As he grabs Friend's shoulders. Mm-hmm. I love the implication that not only did he see something fantastic, it's forbidden in his culture to see it. Yeah. And he runs off back to the monastery. Yeah. So it's like, that's what makes me think that that monastery is like the monastery that worships the Yeti. I, I, I almost wonder, I mean, if they could have even put... What would have made a nice little thing is if later, like in the background or something like that, you would see him 
be like blinded in the monastery. Yeah. That would have been a nice touch. Yeah, because we never find out what happened to Kusain. I know, but yeah. I'm saying if mm-hmm. you could have seen him just even in the background. Yeah. You know, like and they the, blinded him or something yeah. for, for seeing him. Yeah. I mean, to me, that would have been a nice touch and been like, oh. Of course, if he knew yeah. that was going to happen, I wouldn't run back to the monastery. I'd run off in the other direction. But he might have volunteered for it. Well, that's true too. Yeah. You know, if that was. Yeah. Well, you if know? it was religious, yeah, zealot, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Uh, they chased, but I know it's not in the movie, but it would have been a nice touch. Just saying. It would have been. You're right. They chased after him, but find a wrecked trap that the Yeti apparently just mangled with ease. Lawson points out that the creature may be intelligent and have more in common with man than what they thought. He warns them to remember that before they start shooting, but of course, Shelley isn't going to do that, despite what he says. Right. McNee goes into a trance-like state again, and they question if the Yeti's proximity is having some effect. So do you think McNee may have seen the Yeti before? And not just the footprints, and they basically partially mind wiped him or something. I think he is connected. He is one of you know he's a sensitive. Yeah. Where he is connected to the universe, not to the extent that the llama is, but he has that connection. I think he did have some interaction with them. To what extent, I don't know. And all he remembers is the footprints. Yeah. 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 I mean, that can kind of go into what we what we discuss at the end of this, too, yes. which we've got some things to talk about there. Shelly is outside and fires, and you hear the cry of something, and McNee loses consciousness. So, like we said, he's really tied to these creatures. Yes. They follow a trail of blood onto the ice, and from behind a snowy rock, we see a large, hairy arm and clawed hand. We don't see anything more, but it's very effective. Fred and Shelly are impressed by the size, 10 to 11 feet, but Rollison is taken by its face, which, of course, we don't see, but they all sell it very well. Well, and to me, that tells you another thing. Friend and Shelley are looking at the size and the grandeur and stuff like that. Rollison is taken by, you know, the whole... The intelligence. The intelligence and, yeah. you know... It's like catching... It's like somebody bringing in a big fish mm-hmm. or something and not, you know, just like, well, look, at I got a, a, a 10-pound bass, you know, or something like... Yeah, exactly. They hear other yetis crying and Rollison says they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they do. Back at the village, Kusang arrives, and Helen sees him come in. She fears the worst, wakes up Foxy, and tells him about it, then goes to see the llama. She lets herself into the temple, and she seems pretty creeped out by all the statues, and apparently faints after the major domo grabs her and carries her off, mm. which is the one concession to the, you know, female. typical female in a yeah. horror film from this period. When she wakes up, the llama is there, and he denies that Kusang has returned. So he's flat lying. Oh, yeah. He says he knows she's worried about her husband. Helen says she knows he's in danger, and he agrees. Danger from their own actions, he says. Mm -hmm. He says he can't help him as it's not possible to bend the destiny of man. The fate of your husband will be governed by his own actions. So since we know the end of this film, and we've already discussed it, do we think that the llama was sure the others would die because of their nature, because of their intentions, but thought that perhaps Rawlson could survive or be trusted to survive? See, I think so. I, I think that I think that's one of those cases. He actually liked Rawlison and thought mm-hmm. he had it. This was like his test, his yeah. you know, his morality test. What's he gonna do? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. He claps for the major domo, and he brings in Foxy, who comes to take Helen back to her quarters. She tells him to take her away from them. She's been a bit creeped out by them previously, but now she's not even trying to hide it. Mm-mm. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think about what she did next? I mean, she's going to go find her husband. Yeah. <laughs> but she's also not stupid. She doesn't go running out, oh, I'm going to throw my coat on and go. No. 
she packs for the hike. She, you know, yep. she's not stupid. She doesn't go alone. She's like, okay, we're taking this, we're taking this. She doesn't go out she gets, half cop. She, she gets supplied. The, she gets the money she, yep. to go get the porters. Foxy intervenes just enough to keep her from spending all her money. Right. She well, doesn't care. She doesn't care about spending all her money. But well, yeah. He's like, well, you probably don't need to do all that. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah. He thinks she's crazy, but he's going to go along with it because he knows she's going to do it without him. So yeah, yeah. But I like that she's proactive. You know, yes. un- unlike Flora in the Invisible Man last time, she's going to do something about it. Oh, she's not going to wring her hands. Yeah. <laughs> again, this was, you know, a very refreshing film. I mean, again, we do have the one fainting thing, which annoyed the poop out of me. Yeah, how many times have you fainted in your life? <laughs> That wasn't brought on by getting my blood drawn? Yeah. Never. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never. Yeah. Uh, back in the mountains, Rollison is tending to McNee's foot, and he seems pretty normal now. He asks Rollison about the Yeti, and he gives him the facts. It's about 10 and a half feet, weighs about 650 pounds. He asks about his face, and Rollison says, it's not Aper Man, but there's a sadness and a wisdom about it. That's what I like. That tells you McNee is akin to Rollison. Yeah. You know? Which is kind of sad what happens to him next. I know. Yeah, I, know. I don't think he really deserved it. No. Yeah, Shelly and Friend deserve it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Rollison leaves them to put his boot on while he helps Friend and Shelly move the body to the cave where they have provisions stored. While they are moving it on a large sledge, Friend also stored, they hear cries again. Mm-hmm. There's a publicity photo in the Hammer story by Marcus Hearn and Alan Barnes uh, that's pretty interesting. It shows Friend and Shelly outside the cave with the tin in the background and the dead Yeti on the sledge in the foreground. It looks like a huge ten and a half foot creature with mm-hmm. a tarp and ropes covering its face and body, but you can see the arms and the legs sticking out. I'm not sure why they cut this from the film because it looks good. Yeah. I mean, that's a good looking... Maybe they just didn't want to show that much of it, but mm-hmm. they're still not showing what it looks like. No. I mean, you're just getting... It's it's just a massive... You're getting an idea of the size. Yeah. I, I think that was a mistake not to include it in the film. I don't, I don't know why they cut it, but they did. So, they return to the tent and McNee is gone. They see him climbing the mountain and call to him, but he looks back. He actually looks back at him. Yeah. And ignores them. Then he falls off the cliff and screams and... When he hits the rock. Oh, I felt so bad. I was it, like, dang. I know it. It's obviously a dummy. And unfortunately, they don't cut away fast enough because you can see the dummy's leg fall off. Yeah. <laughs> His, like, right leg, I think, just, like, falls out of the pants. Yeah. And just, like, falls Yoink. off. Yeah. Uh, that's the one let down on the effects in this film. They knew they didn't have the budget to pull off extravagant effects, so they didn't try. Yeah. Uh, like, they should have kept the, should have cut that and kept the, the big shot of the body that we just talked about. You, of course, don't see his body when they come up to it. It's mostly behind a rock. But Tucker's reaction tells us it's not pretty. I mean, he almost vomits. Yeah. Yeah. And you know he's seen a lot. Yeah, exactly. Rawlson says he hit his head, so it was instantaneous. Friend says they killed him. He couldn't stand their howling, but Rawlson says it was because of his foot. And I'm kind of surprised he's not agreeing with him based on what was said earlier. I honestly think what happened here is, like I said... McNee is sensitive to them. I think they were calling to him to bring him to them, not to hurt him. Mm. I really don't. And I think this was just a tragic accident because mm. of his foot. So they didn't intentionally kill him. No, I don't think they did. I think I think it was simply an accident mm. that this happened. They were calling him to them. And I think that's the reason he didn't raise the alarm when he was... You know, when the Yeti was feeling around or any... I mean, mm. I think they were calling him to them. 
Mm. Not to hurt him. Yeah, well, maybe. And I think it was just a tragic accident. Mm. Wow, that's good. I hadn't thought about that. Mm. Uh, I like that. They hear Shelly's gun and find him frantic with Yeti footprints all around him. He says two ran at him, and he notes how fast they are, despite their size. He then tells friend that he thinks they are after him for killing their kind, and everyone is cracking up, but no one is really wrong. No. <laughs> They're really not. Shelly wants action, and Tom gives it to him. He wants to set up a steel net in the roof of the cave and act as the bait. Shelly goes along with all this for some mad reason. No. I, yeah. Rawlson just stares at friend with disdain over this. Uh, both of them seem to have forgotten they have to bury McNee when Rawlson asks for a shovel, or he calls it a spade. Yeah. But, yeah, so it's like they're, oh, yeah, jock. Like, it's an afterthought. Oh, yeah, yeah that, guy, that guy we were with, he's dead, yeah. Uh, we briefly cut to <sighs> Helen's group, and they camp out at the first hut, despite her wanting to go on. But they're, you know. Yeah, they, he, Foxy knows if they don't, then they're going to lose the porters. They're mm-hmm. going to leave them. Shelly gets the net set up in the cave, and friend hands him a gun, cleaned and loaded, he said. But what it's loaded with, we'll find out later. Mm-hmm. Rawlson shows he hates the idea of, of Shelley using himself as bait, but neither he or friend mind at all. But the net is supposed to have a strength of up to 20,000 pounds. Think about that. Yeah. Woof. Rawlson and friend stay in the tent and watch the cave as the blizzard moves in. Rawlson tries to convince him this is madness, and the dead one is enough to prove his existence. Yeah. But friend doesn't want one pickled, put in a museum, and named after Rawlson. Which he says again, he, he this, doesn't want the credit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is again, this is another piece of the puzzle to show he is a bad person. Right, right. He's he's just wanting to exploit this and make a bunch of money, and get fame. He wants a live one to prove he can bring it in, despite the wolf children debacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rawlson then warns him the creature may have powers men haven't developed, so he's changing his story a bit here too, mm-hmm. uh, and may have inherited the earth, but something went wrong, and now it's waiting for final extinction. Then we get a reference to Cold War hysteria when friend says, if they drop the H-bomb, your descendants too may wind up in the ice. So it just tells you what period you're in. Yeah. Then they hear a ruckus and run out, but at this point can barely see enough to find the cave. We cut back and forth between them wandering in the blizzard and Shelly in the cave, trying to fire his rifle as we see the Yetis like getting out of the net, the silhouettes. Right. We see their silhouettes. Uh, he, and that was nicely done. Yes, it was. It really, really was. He yells for Tom, then moves back toward the rocks as two shadows approach. And the blizzard is very effectively done. Yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly how they did that. I don't know if they like had a certain amount of snow, uh, you know, in camera, and then did some visual effects like post work, right. you know, post production work. But it, it's it's really, really well done. When they arrive at the cave, the net is torn, and Shelley is dead with his neck. His neck's not twisted by force, but it's like in an unnatural position because he's died with his mouth gaping open. In horror, yeah. He died from shock and a heart attack, and Rawlison notes he didn't fire, and then sees the empty shells on the ground. Friend loaded his gun with dummy ammunition. Wow. I mean, that is low. Yeah. (laughs) That is low. Friend says he knew he'd fire even with the net. He didn't want a dead one. Rawlison theorized they were only after the body, but Friend's gun, which was loaded, scared them off. And he actually sees that they were, like, messing with the ropes. Yeah. And he and, and Friend says, but they killed him. And Rawlson says, no, Friend, you did. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. But he's not wrong. <laughs> no, he's not. Now Friend is satisfied with the dead one he's got. That decision is a little late, <laughs> Rawlson says. Uh, Friend is all about being ready for when the Yetis return. And at this point, I'd take McNee's camera, take a lot of photos, and leave the sledge and the body behind. Yep. Just get out. 
Just get out. Rollison wonders what they'll try. He wonders if they knew Ed's gun wasn't loaded. Now Friend is scoffing at the thought transference business. My one gripe with this movie is both characters at one point believe this and then deny it. Like they both, like one minute Rollison thinks they could have this mind transferent and Friend scoffs at it. Then Friend thinks they do and then Rollison scoffs at it. That's my one little gripe with it. Rollison unwraps the Yeti and looks at his face. He says it's not the face of a savage. There's a gentleness to it. Mm -hmm. And Friend is gobsmacked that he would say this. Based on what happens, he wonders if, uh, Rollison wonders if they aren't waiting for humans to die out. He theorizes that all man has learned is to destroy, and if their existence is known, they'll be destroyed too. As men, there can only be, they can only be there to destroy them. So they want to make sure that there's nobody to go back and, and tell, you know, this story. Yeah. Friend points out all they have is the ice, which Rollison says is all they'll need until their time comes. This is a fascinating idea and sadly now more relevant with climate change and everything. Yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah. Then he hears a radio transmission telling them to abandon all gear and head back. So this is a pretty specific thought transference, isn't it? I know. I mean, it's because, of course, the radio is still smashed. Yeah. So they are, like, basically transmitting into Rollison's head, telling him, like, go back, you know, just leave your stuff and go back so we can get, come get our dead, you know. And it's to him. They're yeah. trying to save him, which is, again, why I think they weren't trying to hurt McNee. I mm. think they were calling to him. Mm, maybe. Yeah, you might be right. Friend thinks he's cracking up, and even Rollison agrees it might be altitude sickness. He takes some oxygen, but then Friend hears Shelley calling for help by name. He's calling for Tom. Friend frantically asks why Rollison isn't reacting, and he asks, what can you hear? Right, because he's like, I'm hearing something. What are you hearing, dude? <laughs> yep. Friend makes for the cave entrance with his gun. Rollison tries to convince him it's in his mind, and it just happened to him, but he won't listen to reason even though he buried Shelley, he knocks Rollison into the cave wall and bolts out. And I always love how Peter Cushing reacts to injury. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's not as good as when he cauterized his own vampire bite, but still. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, nothing beats that. Uh, <laughs> I do like that Friend stops at Shelley's grave, so he's not completely forgotten he's supposed to be dead. He's looking all around for him and says, I came to help you this time, Ed. I mean it. So, of course, guilt is fueling this mm -hmm. reaction. But he starts firing his gun. Is that to get Ed to come to him? You think that's what he's trying to do? I think he's just nutters. Oh, okay. Rawson hears the shot and tries to get him to stop firing, but he's yelling too. Yeah. I mean, so again, you know, the shot uh, of the avalanche taking out Friend is really haunting. He actually walks toward it in disbelief and then just stands there because there's nothing he can do. No, uh-uh. He's resigned to his fate at this point. Uh, the quick shot of Rawlison getting knocked into the cave by the force of the snow falling outside is also great. Yep. He goes back out and, again, is yelling for friend. I mean, of course you would, but given what just happened, not yeah. Not real smart, even for Dr. Rawlison. He goes back into the cave, hears noises, and looks up to see two large, hairy figures walking out of the shadows. And they've got something. Do you think they already got the, the creature off the sledge? Do you think that's what that is? Because they've got like what looks like part of a sled. I think so, And they, yeah. And the one throws it to the ground. Uh, there's a down shot of Cushing showing the Yeti's perspective, then Cushing's perspective looking up. It's nicely done to show the different in height. Yeah. The lower face of the Yeti is in shadow, but we see an almost bat-like nose a high forehead and a very human wise eyes. Of course, it's a human right, well. in, a, in a makeup. Uh, but then everything fades to black. This is incredibly restrained, 
but good on Val Guest for not showing something that wouldn't hold up to any scrutiny. It's just enough, and it adds to the mystery of the whole thing. Exactly, exactly. It's yeah. not bad, you know, strawberry jello effect. Right. You know? It's kind of like when we did the Gorgon. You know, it's yeah. like, it it was pretty good, but it wasn't as good. It wasn't good enough to for some of the lingering close-ups. That, you know. They should have cut that a little bit more. Yeah. Cut to Helen's camp, and she hears the Yeti cries and goes outside, with Foxy waking up the porter so they can follow the blizzard is whipping around again, and again, it looks great. So, were they communicating with her where to find him? Yep. I think so, too. Because otherwise, I don't see how she could. They, Of course, they could have just dropped him at the front door. but <laughs> Yeah, but then that's the whole... They take know. a chance getting shot or something. Yeah. Her sliding slowly across the snowy cliff wall reminded me of your favorite Star Trek episode, All Our Yesterdays. Zara Beth. Yep, yeah. yeah. She stops to catch her breath, looks up, and there's John, frozen and unconscious, but standing up against the, the cliff wall. And I thought for sure he was dead. What did you think? Did you ever think he was dead? No. You really didn't? No. I thought he was dead. Nope. Yeah. Blink and you'll miss a quick cut to the Yeti footprints. I know. I did not catch that the first time. Yeah. I, di- I didn't. And you're like, hey. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Now we're back at the monastery, and we first see Helen and Foxy with the llama saying he's sorry for their severe trial. It, to me, it does, again, seem like John is dead. Well, I can kind of see that, because maybe, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, I guess because I know what the ending is. I guess at the time, I was like, oh, man, you know, yeah. he almost made it out. Yeah. But here's his body. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, at least you can bury him. Uh, but then the camera pans, and there John is yes. there with him, John Rawlison. John says he's afraid he was wrong. What I was looking for does not exist. The llama wants to know... You are certain of that? He's very adamant about getting a definitive answer. John answers yes, and the llama has the last word. There is no yeti. And it makes you wonder what he would have done if he didn't go along with it. They were not leaving that monastery. (laughs) No, they were not. At least he wasn't. No. So what do you think? Did John really believe that? Or did he know humanity wasn't ready to know about the yeti? Or it didn't deserve to be hounded by mankind? Or did the yetis or the llama... Or the two together basically mind wipe him. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's open to interpret because it's one of those things. I'd kind of that would be one of those things that you know. Fifteen years later, did he come back like McNee did? You know, mm. are they going to call for him when no. it's his time? No. You know, that may be. Yeah, I'm not sure what to think. I, I think Rollison would preserve their secret. Oh yeah, now. he he'll never tell. Yeah. But I don't put the llama above helping to engineer the greedy men's Oh, destruction. no. He put he knew that them, they were getting smacked. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, we you know we, we watched it this summer. We both instantly wanted to cover it here. It doesn't have the color or the gore of Hammer's gothic masterpieces, but it's easily one of the most thoughtful and thought-provoking films mm-hmm. the studio ever made. It's one of those cases, if you look at the... I mean, to me, there's many parallels between this film... And the creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there really is. Yes. I mean, there are some things that need to be left alone. Yes, yes. And and I feel like, you know, in that film, that Richard Carlson's character, the lead scientist and Julie Adams, mm-hmm. would have totally left him alone. But you had the boat, you know, right. Nestor Pavia's character, and he's, he's the one that's taken the next group to find him in the sequel. Right. And then they take him to SeaWorld, basically, mm-hmm. and all that, you know. They exploit him yeah. like they like friend would have done here. Exactly. And yeah, you're right. I'm glad you brought that up because I did not put that in the notes. But that yes, it does feel 
a lot like the creature. And it, I mean, this is only three years later. Yeah. After the creature within, came out. Within a very short time. Yeah, I mean, the creature films were still, I mean, I think the last one had just come out, like mm-hmm. maybe a year or so before this. So yeah, it's 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 got that kind of same feel, but yeah, that's that's a great point. It does it does have a lot of feeling like that. Um, yeah, uh, the, just that the you know we didn't get we didn't get a horny uh, yeti coming after Helen. That's the only difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll get some of that later in our in our episode. I'll say that. Uh, <laughs> if you've never seen it, we highly recommend this. It is. It is such a good movie. It yeah. really is. It's streaming free on Fossum, which is a free streaming service mm-hmm. if you got a Roku or whatever. F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E. Yeah. And you just have to suffer through commercials, unfortunately. Yeah. But I'm going to get this on Blu-ray or DVD. Okay. I want to own this one. It's, it's that good. Yeah. So, I do want to say, this is one of those... That when you have this film and you have the creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, you're seeing that man is the true monster. It's not the monster of the piece. Mm-hmm. It's not the monster of the title. Man is the monster. Yeah. And I mean, that that to me is the biggest thing about it. I mean, it is... I, I loved this movie. I really did. Well, great. That's great. I'm glad you really, I'm glad you really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. I really did too. Yeah. We'll take a quick break, then check into the comic crypt and see if we can find a story or two with some bumbles. Hi, I'm Jeff Owens. And I'm Richard Chamberlain. And we want you to join our club, the Classic Horrors Club. Every month, Richard and I host the Classic Horrors Club podcast, where we talk about our favorite subject, horror movies. Some of them are classics. We all go a little mad sometimes. And some definitely aren't. What you see is real. What's done is done, and what I've done is right. It's the work of science. But we love them all the same. We also have special theme months where we highlight the legendary stars. And we head to the drive-ins of the past every summer for exciting double and triple features. Hi, I'm Chili Dilly, the personality pickle. And we even have occasional guests. My obsession, and it is truly an obsession, I suppose, uh, Frankenstein, the true story, dates back to when it first aired in two parts on NBC in 1973. So join the fun and listen to the Classic Horrors Club podcast today. Hosted by SoundCloud, we're available wherever fine podcasts are found. And for even more fun, check out the video companion on our YouTube channel. And remember, we sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Gimme That Star Trek. A new episode every month, only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes.
Okay, now we're back, and we're going to head to the comic crypt and look for Batman number 337, which was cover dated July 1981, on sale April 9th, 1981. Uh, it has a cover by... We were G- six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I bought it off the stands. Uh, so what do you think about the cover by Jim Aparo? I mean, I especially when we just got finished with that, I'm like, I'll be honest, the first thing that went through my brain was, Wendigo. Oh, yeah, Wendigo, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what went through my brain. It kind of does look like the Wendigo here, yeah. much more than it does in the comic. Yeah. 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 It's, it's it, you know, of course, it's by Jim Aparo, so it's it's very cool. It's a fantastic image. It certainly draws you in because how often do you see Batman in the snowy mountains on skis? Right. Let alone battling a giant snow creature. Yeah, he's much larger and more monstrous appearing here on the cover, but, you know, artistic license. Oh, yeah, you know. Yeah. The buy me thing, cover. Yeah, right. There's a Robin backup in this issue we're not concerned about, but it's written by Jerry Conway and drawn by Don Newton, so it's good, too. Yeah. Where Walks a Snowman, uh, Jerry Conway did the script. Roy Thomas was uh, credited with plot assist, but we'll learn more about that later. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise praise be his his name. name, uh, Did the pencils. Steve Mitchell was on inks. John Costanza was on letters. Adrian Roy was on colors. And Dick Giordano, another Batman legend, was the editor. And Vin Turpini's uncle. Yeah, your friend Ventures Peeney's uncle. Yes, yeah. but yeah. anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as another winter storm prepares to blow into Gotham, Batman answers the bat signal and joins Commissioner Gordon and his SWAT team in an armed standoff at an uptown sporting goods store. The Dark Knight sneaks in but finds that the gunman is frantic and hysterical. He soon sees what has distressed the thief into a near murderous rage. His partner is frozen to death in a block of ice. The thief later confesses his partner was attacked by a large frozen figure whom he dubbed the Snowman. He made off with the store's cash and killed his partner with his icy touch. Despite a new mystery to solve, Bruce Wayne has a party to host. And so Batman makes his way to the Wayne Foundation building. In his civilian guise, he interacts with one of his primary guests, obnoxious Olympic skiing champion Klaus Christian. The albino Christian tells the female party guests of his travels and quickly ditches Wayne's party for a night on the town with him. Bruce does notice icy sludge on, on Kristen's shoes, despite the previous snow being cleared off the streets some time earlier. The snowman strikes again, this time hiding in plain sight as a normal children's snowman waiting for nightfall to rob a jewelry store and murder the night watchman. Investigating a possible connection, Batman breaks into Christian's apartment and finds that most of his clothes are gone in a ski directory with a missing page. Hearing sirens from the jewelry store, Batman takes off to answer them, but not before picking up the diary of Christian's mother, hoping to find some clues about her son. Back at the penthouse apartment in the Wayne Foundation building, Bruce Wayne reads aloud to Alfred the daily account of Katrina Christian from December of 1954. On a United Nations-funded expedition into the Himalayas, Katrina fell from a great height and nearly died in the frozen waste. Separated from her group, she sought refuge in a cave. Unable to make a fire, Katrina passed out, expecting to die. She awoke to find someone had saved her by feeding her the rations from her backpack and building a fire to keep her warm. Days passed, and Katrina found herself drawn to her savior. She came to him in the dark, and they made love by the fire. Katrina's entries ended with her longing to see her lover in the morning light. Instead, the next entry was by her sister, who accounted how when she was rescued, Katrina was mad, unable to speak save for the word Yeti. Nine months later, Katrina gave birth to Klaus, and then died, leaving him to be raised by his aunt. While Bruce ponders the possibility of Klaus Christian's parentage, he finds a copy of the ski directory Christian had ripped the page from. The missing page advertised a ski resort in Austria. Traveling there, Bruce eventually finds Christian at a local lodge. 
He leaves Katrina's diary in Christian's room and a note telling him to meet him at the summit peak at midnight, signed by the Batman. An enraged Christian finds the note and that night, in his snowman form, meets the caped crusader, surprising him by coming up from underneath the snow. Batman is able to evade him on his skis and surprises the snowman by swinging from the trees and kicking him. Rolled up in a snowball on the edge of a cliff, Christian lures Batman in, then emerges. With the masked manhunter on his back, the snowman continues to move closer. Christian warns Batman that since he knows of his birthright, he must die. But Batman reminds him that he also knows that he's albino and sensitive to bright light. He activates a marker flare from his belt, which blinds Christian and sends him plummeting backwards off the cliff into the snow far below. Batman ponders if Christian knew what would happen when he approached and chose to end his tortured existence this way. Despite the way the credits read, Roy Thomas has stated he created the snowman and came up with the full plot of this issue with Jerry Conway scripting from it. Thomas had recently defected from a 15-year-long stint at Marvel, and despite asking not to be put on Superman or Batman books, he found himself assigned to them right away. Mm. He wrote a few more stories with Conway, and then Conway took over completely, contributing a long run to both Batman and Detective, where the titles became connected every month. During this period, he introduced significant additions to the Batman mythos, such as Killer Croc and Jason Todd. Uh, you can kind of tell Roy had more of a hand this time uh, than just a plot, plot assist, just by the very purple prose. Yeah. It was the style of comic writing at the time, but Roy was more flowery than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the setup almost makes it seem like the whole story is going to be Batman going in and taking down these gunmen. Uh, shooting from inside the sporting goods store with an arsenal at their disposal. Of course, the cover told us otherwise. Right, but still, you know. Yeah. How many times does the cover and the inside not match? Yeah, that'd be a pretty big swerve. Uh, but still, <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. The art, well, it's it's just gorgeous. It's Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, Praise be his, his name. name. Uh, we could wax his skis here, ha. but suffice to say, every single panel in this comic is just gorgeous. And Batman looks so incredibly on model for this period because... Jose Luis Garcia Lopez created those models. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there's a bit of Neil Adams in JLGLs, but he makes him his own. His capage is particularly well done. I love how it flows and wraps around his body. He doesn't get enough credit for that. Yeah. yeah. Garcia Lopez drew a few issues of Batman here and there during this period, including the previous one, but not nearly enough. There's a hardcover collection that's supposed to be coming out soon of all his Batman stories. I have both volumes of Superman that he drew, and Ryan Daly gave me the first volume, which I got signed by the man himself when we were all at Heroes Con together six years ago. Yes. And are you trying to give me a subtle hint about something you want on your birthday slash Christmas list? Yes. Oh, okay. Thank you. Steve Mitchell's, <laughs> Steve Mitchell's inks are solid and in no way overpower Garcia Lopez. He would go on to have a nice run inking Norm Brayfogle on Batman by the end of the decade. So this burglar becomes a crazed gunman based on what he saw. He thinks Batman is working with the snowman, we'll learn about later. Batman chases him through the store, knocks him down with a batarang, and on page four, we see why he's so freaked out. His pal Jackie is frozen solid. Right. Now, you're in Gotham City. You find someone frozen solid in a block of ice and frosty footsteps leaving the scene of the crime. What would your first thought be? Mr. Freeze. Exactly. (laughs) My one major complaint in this story is there isn't a line between Batman and Gordon like, Mr. Freeze, he's still in prison. I already checked. Right. You know? I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. Or cap, uh, call to the Flash, hey, where's Captain Cold right now? Yeah, you yeah, know? It's yeah. Just like, you know, it's, you know. Um, so we'll get Kristen's backstory later, but we see the flashback of him killing Jackie 
His touch is sub-zero, and he can instantly freeze anything he comes into contact with. So is he a mutant as well as being the offspring of two species? Can his father do that? I mean, maybe right. we'll find out later. Right. Yeah. Uh, Batman swings over to the Wayne Foundation building because this is when he was still living there. Conway would bring him back to Wayne Manor shortly, as we will see. We meet Klaus Kristen, who's holding court with all the ladies. He talks about constantly traveling, finding somewhere to ski all year round, and we learn why in a little bit. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about Klaus here? He's albino, white curly hair, and always wearing his pink sunglasses. He looks like Cyclops and William Cat had an albino baby. (laughs) But he isn't smart enough to wipe his feet, apparently. What do you think of this guy? I think it's one of those cases that, you know, at this point, he is full of himself. He doesn't think he can get caught. You know, mm, probably he yeah. just you know. Yeah, true. His success. And I don't think it's necessarily him being smart enough or dumb enough. He's just too confident in himself. Yeah. Okay. So Kristen hid inside a regular snowman all day. Uh, I'm wondering if kids came up and tried to mess with him. You like knock him over? You know, because <laughs> that's what kids do with snowmen. Oh yeah. When he kills a security guard, he seems to blast freezing cold at him from afar. Although the text tells us he's touching the glass, alarm, etc., to freeze them. So do you think that's an art goof or? Why couldn't he have just blasted at Batman later if he can project I had it? that question, too. I don't know. It was yeah. one of those, I, uh, yeah, it's, you know. Yeah, I mean, because he killed Jackie by, like, basically strangling yeah. him while he's freezing him. Batman is really into breaking into people's private property this season of House of Frankenstein, isn't he? He is. Yeah, he, he is. is. Uh, then we get the story of Katrina Kristen. So what did you think about that? Holy macaroni. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but did you not realize the guy was furry from head to foot? <laughs> I mean, come on! <laughs> this is a code-approved comic book, but we're getting all beastly with a Yeti. Uh-huh. Yeah. Again, it's fur. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know I'm hairy, but come on. You know? I mean, that's what I'm, I'm saying. I mean, you, you could probably be the missing link, but still not that much. <laughs> uh, plus, she <laughs> oh, can, you're blushing. She can see good enough to write by the fire, but not see his face. Yeah. Maybe he never got too close to the fire while she was near it. You know, other than to build it and stoke it and stuff. He stoked something. Yeah. (laughs) The panel revealing his face is subdued but very effective. He doesn't. He doesn't look like Kristen so much. Who isn't really hairy, just monstrous. I mean, Kristen kind of looks like a bit like Garcia Lopez is Solomon Grundy, naked with red. We already had enough naked Grundy, but naked with red eyes and fangs. Uh, his dad has somewhat more of ape-like features and long white hair even on his face. He looks like a white werewolf, really. Oh, yeah, I can see that. In a lot that. of ways, yeah. yeah. I was a weenie at the time, and this panel kind of creeped me out. It left an impression in my brain. Like, yeah. That panel's like, you know, it's, it's, it's been paying rent in my brain for years. Mm. So I do like that Batman is very much the detective here, figuring out where Kristen went and following him there. I love when he uses Bat Stationery, too. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe that's how Rachel Gould figured out his identity. He called around to see who'd ordered that in Gotham. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Vistaprint, what's going on here? Yes. <laughs> Batman looks cool in ski boots. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are blue and black and yellow, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, this is before Kenner would come up with some skiing version of Batman, mm-hmm. you know, or the, the cool Arctic, uh, you know, Michael Keaton Batman from the Batman Returns line, so we got to get to the ending. Batman says marker flares are standard equipment for skiers, and Kristen would know that. Uh-huh. As he's falling to his apparent death, Batman says, You knew that, but still you let me get close to you. I wonder, Kristen, did you expect this? Were you hoping it would end this way? If the wind can answer for you, Kristen, I wonder what it would say. 
So, do you think Kristen was looking for suicide by superhero? Or is Batman just trying to make himself feel better that he straight up committed at least manslaughter? The latter. <laughs> I'm sorry. I... I think there's other ways Batman could have, you know, subdued, subdued him, yeah. subdued him without like blinding him to the point he fell off a mountain. Uh huh. This is kind of like when Superman left those people on the mountain, George Reeves. Yeah. You know my secret identity. I'm gonna leave you in this cabin until I figure out what to do with you. Now, don't go off this mountain or you'll die. Don't try to escape. And then he's conveniently gone. They instantly like go out and fall off a mountain and die. Yeah. Problem solved. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to feel about the ending. I guess, I mean, I guess Batman maybe didn't really know he was going to fall, but he was counting on blinding a guy who was standing at the edge of a cliff. So whether he wanted it or not, I think Batman pretty much killed this guy, or so it seems. Mm-hmm. I mean, I concur. Yeah, fitting that Kristen dies in the same manner that his mother fell into the world that led to his birth. Oh, you know, yeah. off that cliff, yeah. Uh, despite some minor gripes, this is a fun tale for me with absolutely gorgeous art that makes the whole thing It's compli- a Batman comic with bestiality. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, quasi-bestiality, you yeah, know, considering, yeah, you know. Yeah, the missing link part, yeah. yeah. Uh, the villain is pretty unique, even if his power set isn't. I, I do have a thing for the ultra-humanizer. Yeah, that's true, you do. That, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so what did you think of this one? It was, I was like, that was a quick swerve. I mean, yeah. you know, it was like, wow, okay. <laughs> you know, thanks for pulling me out of the snow. Let me give you some. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if it was like in the 60s, you kind of get the free love thing going. Yeah, right? you know, yeah. This was the 50s. So. I know. I was like, oh, my. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but that wasn't the end of Class Kristen. No. Because we have Detective Comics number 522. Cover dated January 1983, on sale October 28th, 1982. So about, hey, at least it was a Halloween time. That's right. You're right. Yeah. Another cover by Jim Apparel. This time Batman is on a snowy cliff, his cape wrapped around him as the snowman approaches. It was one of those cases. It's, again, I, I instantly went to Wendigo. It looks like the Wendigo from Marvel. Yeah. It does. But the thing about it is, why on earth would Batman have a cape where there's all this wind? That makes no sense. I'm like, he's gonna pull his rear end off of that cliff. It's gonna wind's gonna catch his cape, and he's shwing, gonna thanks, go. Thanks, Edna Mode. Yeah. Again. <laughs> no cape styling. Yeah. I, I, you got a good point. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, I, I hadn't thought of that. Honestly. Oh, I had. That was the first thing I thought. I'm like, dude, where is your snow bat suit? <laughs> well, he says it's it, it's insulated. It just doesn't look different. But yeah, you're right. He should have lost the cape. What I I think this one loses a little bit because it, it looks like it's daytime, mm-hmm. where the other one looked like it was nighttime. Right. The, the atmosphere is kind of off, but it, it's a really nicely done. It's Jim Apparel, it's Batman, so of course it's, it looks good. Snowblind. We had uh, Jerry Conway as a writer, Irv Novick and Pablo Marcos as the artist. Ben Oda was letterer, Adrian Roy was colorist, and Lynn Ween was the editor this time. Batman and his guide Chi are nearly killed in the Himalayan mountains by an avalanche. With his binoculars, Batman looks to the top of the mountain where the snow fell and believes he saw the shape of a man. But Chi tells him that no man could be there, only the mythical Yeti. Batman and Chi bunk in his shelter for the night, and Batman ponders how his international trek began. Visiting the offices of Picture News for a date with Vicki Vale, Bruce Wayne saw a familiar face in a recent crowd shot from Tibet. Klaus Christian, a.k.a. the snowman, not that snowman, who apparently did not die in their previous encounter. Not Frosty the Snowman. No, I was thinking Jerry. Jerry Reed. <laughs> That's what I thought. 
Eastbound and down, loaded up in trunk. Son, I got a Kojak with a Kodak on my case down here in Tibet. Uh, if it's, I'm sorry. <laughs> there's a Texas bubblegum machine done can follow me all the way to Tibet, son. Uh, if it's, okay, back on track. Back sorry. on track, back on track. That's uh, my fault. Uh, apparently he didn't die in this encounter. If his foe is alive, Batman believes he needs to pay for his crimes and thus heads for Tibet in the Batjet. Back to the present, he and Chi make their way to the sacred lake of Buddha. Amongst the pilgrims bathing near the lake, they found Klaus Kristen. Batman pursues him, and the two fall into the icy lake. Batman hits his head on the rocks as they plummet to the lake bed, but surprisingly, Kristen saves him, cursing him for fighting him at the same time. The local guard sees Batman injured and assumes the worst, shooting Kristen, who jumps into the lake and swims away. As Batman questions why Christian would try to kill him one day and save him the next, they follow his trail of blood to Mount Collis. There, Batman encounters what he believes is Christian in his snowman form. The beast knocks Batman from the cliff, but he manages to hang on long enough for Chi to pull him to safety. At the temple that sets on the mountain's peak, Batman finds the very human Christian inside, who confesses that he is dying. He tells Batman that after surviving his nearly fatal fall, he felt reborn and longed to journey to his birthplace of Tibet. Here, he prayed to die, but he wouldn't let him. The snowman that attacked earlier throws the large statue of Buddha at Batman, but the Dark Knight is prepared with a flare once more and holds the monster at bay. Christian confirms that this larger yeti is indeed his father. Kristen begs Batman to put out the flare that is blinding his father. Batman does so, but tells Kristen he has two choices, return to civilization for medical treatment and to stand trial for his crimes, or stay there and die with his father. Kristen chooses the latter, and somehow his father understands, carrying his dying son away into the mountains. Uh, so we've got Jerry Conway solo here, and we'll see there are some story inconsistencies between this sequel and the original, which we just covered, but mm -hmm. we'll get to that. On the art, we have Irv Novick, whose credits go back to the Golden Age and the creation of MLJ, later Archie's, The Shield, the comic's first patriotic hero who predated Captain America. Novick began drawing Batman in the late 60s when Carmine Infantino stepped away from his drawing desk for an executive job. He drew various Batman features off and on through the early 1980s, as well as nearly uninterrupted run on The Flash for most of the 70s. Novick was drawing Batman when I first started getting comics on a regular basis, so his version had always been like a really good mac and cheese Batman. Yeah. It's not the prime rib of Garcia Lopez, Neil Adams, or Marshall Rogers. It's solid comfort food that sticks to your ribs. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, it's good. Uh, Jerry tells us Batman is wearing an insulated costume, like I said, but it doesn't look any different than the regular suit. So, you know, again, what would Kenner think? Exactly. And he has his cape on, which like, <laughs> He is sporting some fashionable red goggles, though. Yes. Batman has to swing away with Chi when the avalanche starts. A grapple gun would really come in handy here. Mm -hmm. He's still got to use the old batarang and bat rope method. Uh, Chi is a bit of a stereotype, but I don't think he's offensive or blatantly so. What do you think? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I've seen worse. I mean, yeah. the, when I was on the Batman Family Reunion with Sean and Paul, there was a, a, a Batgirl story with Don Heck drawing some really kind of, oh, this is 1979 and they're still drawing Chinese people that way. Kind of, you know, yeah. Ugh, yeah. So when they rest in the temple, Adrian Roy uses her patented warm color palette when they are sitting around the fire. Adrian Roy, she colored Batman comics for like, like two decades. And she was great. And she would like do these really like evocative you know, moments where they were in like, you know, against a fire or, you know, and it would like the colors would be in red and oranges. Mm -hmm. And I always really thought that was cool. Batman wonders if he really isn't after Kristen to get away from his problems, a.k.a. the subplots. 
in the recent issues of Batman and Detective. A, the love triangle between him, Selena Kyle, and Vicki Vale. B, the trial of boss Rupert Thorne. C, the growing distance he senses coming from Dick Grayson. He actually has some self-awareness in this issue. Go him. Yeah, I know. This is before he's an inhuman, you know, man-child that's, you know, totally emotionally crippled. Mm. Uh, Conway had reintroduced Vicki Vale into the series along with several other Golden Age revivals following the lead of Steve Englehart years prior when he was working with Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. Vicki tried to expose Bruce's Batman, then got into it with Catwoman over him. I haven't reread those stories in a long time, so I'm not sure how... Well, the ladies are portrayed there, you know, for modern, you know, the modern sensibilities, but they were, I enjoyed them at the time. Uh, Vicky has become editor of Picture News, while Bruce says he left the Wayne Foundation because it was too demanding to balance his Batman life. This era is probably the last time Bruce Wayne really had his own life outside of the cow, so it's a shame to see it's already kind of heading that way. Uh, Batman spots Kristen in a photo spread called Pilgrims of Mount Callus uh, or Calais, however you want to say that. You think a guy who knows he's wanted and can kill people willy-nilly wouldn't have let that photographer get a shot of him. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Between these two stories, Batman had shut down the Wayne Foundation Batcave and returned to Wayne Manor. Dick Grayson had also returned as a regular cast member, but the popularity of the new Teen Titans would soon necessitate a change, hence the coming of Jason Todd. Right. Bruce tells Dick that, I tracked him to a cliff in Switzerland. What happened to Austria? I know. Yeah, like, he wasn't in. You weren't in Switzerland. You were in Austria. He also says, and watched as he fell to his death after being blinded by a flare. He leaves out the part that he did this, knowing it would probably send him over, over the, the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Batman made arrangements with the local authorities so no legal illegal extraction, like in the Dark Knight. You know, remember that when he went to Hong Kong and got the guy. You know. Uh, Chi tells Batman that Mount Calais or uh, Calais is the most sacred mountain in Tibet. The sacred lake of Buddha below is a source of life-giving rivers of northern India. Pilgrims come to partake of the waters at its source. Conway based this on the real-life Mount Kalish. Not sure why the minor name change, maybe so as not to offend anyone, or it's just a DCU fake name thing. Yeah. Maybe it's that. We see a large silhouetted figure standing on a peak above Batman and Chi on page 7. They never notice it. It should tell readers early on that there are two snowmen here. Mm -hmm. Batman shows papers to whom I assume is a Chinese soldier. He's oddly colored entirely in red. Subtle, you know. (laughs) He says, you have been given the highest authority. So did Batman flash his JLA card? See, there you go. Yeah. Why not? (laughs) I know Superman, you know. Uh, he shows the soldier. He hey, rebuilds the wall with his, you know, great wall rebuilding vision. So there you go. Uh, he shows the soldier a photo of Kristen and then points right to him in the doorway of the temple. That's timing. I know. Right as he's coming out. Yeah. And he's got his little robe on like he's getting ready to take a dip. Yeah. You know, in the, or in just the, came from the dip. Yeah, yeah. He just came from the dip. Batman chases Kristen back into the temple and he tackles him so hard they fall through the wall into the lake. Calm down, Bruce. I mean, he's a little, you know, I'm like, dude, Overzealous. chill. He's, yeah. he's not inhuman right now. Just bat rope him, you know? <laughs> One thing I love about Novick's art is how kinetic it is. You really get the sense of crazy movements when Batman and Kristen's limbs are moving all over. Mm-hmm. He was always good at that. So why did Kristen save Batman? He had no problem killing an innocent security guard in our last story. The script? <laughs> Has he found enlightenment in his, like, dying days? Yeah. Or, which we'll get to that, I don't know. Since Batman has the highest authority clearance, the Chinese soldier shoots Kristen thinking he hurt Batman. Right. 
Uh, Novik draws Kristen with a sly smile as he swims away. I'm not sure that fits what's going on here. No. Mm-mm. I think that was a miscommunication there. As they are tracking Kristen's bloody trail, Batman wonders why Kristen will try to kill them one day and save him the next. So we're getting clued in that we're dealing with two snowmen mm-hmm. as we go along. And when we meet Daddy, he has the hairy face like we saw in Katrina's diary flashback. Again, would you not know? <laughs> I mean, because when you're intimate, you're close and you feel all the stuff and, you know, come Oh, you, on. you've got such a heavy beard and it's also on your cheeks and around your eyes and... Your forehead. Your forehead and, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Yet, Daddy knocks Batman off a cliff, so poetic justice. I think so. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Batman has to ask Chi to throw him a rope. Does he not have his bat rope in his belt? I mean, I mean, you know, he carries bat shark repellent. Why not that? <laughs> bat yeti repellent. Yeah. Uh, it's a flamethrower. Uh, when Batman arrives at the temple at the top of Mount Clay and finds Kristen kneeling before Buddha, he asks, is he here? So Batman's already figured out what's going on. This is Detective Comics. Yes. So that, that's good Batman's ahead. Of, he's ahead of the readers, exactly. So Kristen says, too late, I'm dying, finally dying. So was he dying before the gunshot That's wound? what I want to know. Yeah. That's what I want to know. I, I, or, or did he just want to die before and now, oh, now I really am dying. It's a bit foggy. Yeah, I mean, so did the gunshot wound... Or was he going to be dying anyway, and the gunshot wound just expedited the process? Right. You know? Yeah, because he says he was reborn when he awoke from his fall in the last story, so I don't think he was dying then. Right. I I, so, I, I just wonder if maybe because he is a half-breed, does he have a shorter lifespan? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. I, I, that's I what I want to know. Yeah, me too. I don't know. Kristen confesses that he hated the world due to his background, hence his lashing out and killing. He came here to die, but he being his father, won't let him. The Yeti arrives and Batman blinds him like his kid, but he's not standing on a cliff, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Batman gives Kristen a choice, but is that Batman's choice to I make? I don't know. He acted like judge, jury, and executioner. This is like when Batman, like like in the Clayface episode, when he just, instead of just letting the Matt Hagen turn back into, Clayface turn back into Matt Hagen, he pulls the plug. Yeah. And just like, dude, let him, like, you know, you know what are you doing? You know, it's like... <laughs> The panel with the Yeti touching Kristen's smiling face is really well done. You get the sadness in his father's face and the resignation in his son's. Yeah. Yeah. The Yeti carries off his son, and that's the last we see of either of them as far as I can tell. Okay. I looked up, and I, you know, I mean, unless some somebody did some awful storyline with them in the last few years, I don't think they ever reappeared. So what did you think about this one? I mean, it was one of those cases. There's unanswered questions in it, and there's some, you know, it's not far enough apart that there should be Switzerland versus Austria and you know there there's some unanswered questions here yeah I, I think part one was stronger mostly due mm-hmm. to the art but I, it's a nice wrap up I'm, I'm glad they didn't just leave it hanging well yeah, yeah. I mean, you, but you see what I mean yeah I, I think maybe Kristen gets off a bit too easy but you can kind of understand why his lineage affected his morals but I, I wish we'd learned just a bit more about when Kristen actually learned he could change could he control it at will, always, you know. What, Did he start changing when he hit puberty, when he hit, tw- you know. Yeah. Or what, when he was a kid, or, you know. Right, exactly, exactly. These were fun, and as soon as I thought about doing an abominable snowman. This is know, the one you picked. This is the one I thought, well, we got to do, and we got to do both of them. Mm-hmm. Because, they're, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one continuation. Yeah, and, and, you know, I know we just did Batman last month, so we usually don't try to do that. But, you know, hey, they fit the movies perfectly, so. There yeah, you go. We did them. It's our show. We'll do it when we want. Yeah. <laughs> 
A huge shout out as always to our friend Terry O'Malley, aka Ward Hill Terry, or Ward Hills Have Eyes Terry, for the House of Frankenstein theme. Follow Terry's band Stop Calling Me Frank on their Facebook page. Check the show notes for more info. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Extra special thanks to Jorge Luis Castillo, Matt Ryan, Neil Whitney, Jeff Owens of the Classic Horse Club Podcast, David Capoon, and Rocket Dan Johnson, who specifically support our JLU cast, but as always, we'll be thanking them here for the next two months while we're at the House of Frankenstein. If Grundy goes off with that prospector, I may need some help with our blow mold decorations. So you guys keep your phones handy. And good Lord, people, he's got, he's bought more. <laughs> help. Both Halloween and Christmas. Yes. Yes, you got to help me take the Halloween down and put the Christmas up. And then take the Christmas <laughs> back up. Next time, we stay in England, but with a universal production as we venture to a quaint little, not-so-friendly inn called The Slaughtered Lamb. In the meantime, stay off the moors. See you then. Bye. It's so great being a Yeti. It makes me want to yell. Yeti, 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 Yeti! Stomp, stomp, stomp. I'm stomping that Yeti stomp. Stomp, stomp, stomp. I'm stomping that Yeti stomp. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FW Podcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. I'm going to stomp up there with a messy hair, kind of dirty and a little bit sweaty. Stomp, 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 get ready. Stomp, 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 I'm a Yeti. Stomp, 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 I'm stomping that Yeti stomp. Stomp, 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 I'm stomping that Yeti stomp. You can see the cave. Yeah, so far. You better call it off. Call it off? The snow may be just the thing they're waiting for. That man's depending on it. If he gets in trouble, I'm gonna help him. Don't worry. Friend, why not settle for the one we've got? I've said no. You've cracked the mystery. You've proved the creature exists. Settle for that. Take back a Dublin if we can. Uh-uh. Have him pickle it and write out learned reports, stick a skeleton in a museum and call it something other than Sonic. I'm not looking for credit. No, not gonna be like that. He's mine. Like the famous wolf children? Just the opposite. This is no fake. That's why I'm not gonna give up. I'm going to prove to him I can bring back the real thing. You can't drag this down to a personal level. It's far too important. Not to me. Listen. There's a warning in this creature. It's strong, intelligent. It may have powers we haven't even developed. It might have inherited the Earth. Something went wrong. And here it is, the last vestige of a species hiding away where nothing else will live. Waiting in misery and despair for final extinction. I don't have to point the moral.